The following is Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. No promotional fees are paid by authors or other guests who appear on the show. If you have comments or suggestions, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. Welcome to Voices of Experience once again on Kixie AM 880 and KKNW 1150 AM simulcast together. You could be listening to it on either station. My name is Paul Casey, your host, along with Eric Crema and Eric Ryder. We welcome you today. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Yeah, doing great. Yeah, it's starting to get nice around here. You can feel Same spring is in, in the Palm air. Springs. And uh, it's been raining pretty much all the last couple of days, and it just started clearing up here as well. Beautiful. Yeah, it's And been... my wife just got back from there, too. Oh, is that right? Yeah, she was in Seattle. You're aware of the Dony Co. Pet Clinic yes. that she's involved with. She's the president of that. And um, she was up there and uh, just checking on things and seeing how things are going. They have a clinic that's in downtown Seattle, and uh, things are, are going pretty well. It is a clinic that helps, and it's been doing this for 35 years, the low-income and homeless people, their pets. And uh, it's been an amazing service. And coincidentally, one of the interviews I have today is uh, the dean from Washington State University's College of Veterinary Medicine, uh, Dr. Dory Borgeson. And when she was at Cal Davis on the faculty, she came up to Seattle maybe 10, 11 years ago, and she saw this Donico pet clinic going on. Hmm. And she went back to California and started a similar type of clinic in Sacramento, wow. not knowing any idea that she would be coming up to the state of Washington. And now WSU and the Donico pet clinic are collaborating on many fronts. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, but um, she's going to be on the program and she's going to be talking about some of the research they're doing, and actual practical implementations for infectious diseases. And this affects all of us. It's very important. And I didn't know this. Washington State University is the fourth oldest vet school in the country. So she'll be up uh, coming up a little bit later. Also, Matthew Williams, he was a victim of a hate crime. And uh, that's what led him to becoming a criminologist. Hmm. And uh, he wrote a book, The Science of Hate why we hate and how we can overcome hate in our society. And again, he uh, had his own uh, situation where he was attacked and uh, it changed his life. And it's a very interesting interview. I actually did this about a week ago. Voices in History, the first liquid fuel rocket was launched in Auburn, Massachusetts. Sorry, Auburn, Washington. <laughs> in 1926, it rose to a height of 20, excuse me, 43 feet. And guess what happened 43 years later? That will go into mm. what we're talking about there. Timeless classics for today. Another story of a song that was placed on the B-side as a single, but then it became the big hit. I know I did a one-hit wonder about a year and a half ago. It had to do with the Trogs. And they had a song, A Girl Like You. Mm -hmm. And some DJ in the country flipped it by mistake on the B-side, and it was wild thing. And of course, <laughs> the rest is history, but a similar thing happened with this timeless classic today. 
Peculiar Podcast with Pat Cashman and Lisa Foster. Today is going to be a tribute to Burt Bacharach. Mm -hmm. And uh, he just died, what, a couple weeks ago? Yep. Something like that. And again, I listened to it and I went, I had no idea the depth of him. I knew he had some hit songs. I, I knew he was very accomplished. But just the diversity of songs and, and how many he had. So they kind of cover that. So I thought that would be interesting for our listeners to hear. How about you guys? Do you know much about Burt Bacharach? I really don't. Yeah, I, I do in a sense. Uh, back when this format on this station was KSRB, I didn't realize how many R&B hits um, had his fingerprints on it, if you will. Of course, sung by different artists. Um, how about you, Eric? Yeah, actually, uh, <laughs> doing some research for a show that airs tomorrow on KKNW called Viva ENT, where we're talking exclusively about Burt Bacharach songs and Hal David, his songwriting partner. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm mouth agape <laughs> looking at the <laughs> list of amazing songs that uh, those guys wrote and the amount of careers they helped launch. You know, everybody from Dion Warwick to the Carpenters to, mm -hmm. you know, punk bands like the Stranglers covered their songs i mean it's it's just amazing yeah. wow that is incredible to hear all that um i'm glad i brought that up yeah. you guys eric that's great <laughs> information you know. yeah that's what i'm saying i'm just stunned by all that he did and eric obviously you have um much deeper information on that what time is that show tomorrow let's uh promote it tomorrow at five on kknw 11 50 a.m okay. good so if they enjoy this turn in the k uh tune into kknw tomorrow so if we can get to it today, I'd like to do something. Eric will talk about older workers and some things that people who are older can find jobs. We're trying to head in that direction more. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's going to be a theme as we move forward over the next couple of weeks. I'm doing some preliminary research now. Um, I've got some names of people, including a, uh, a woman I'm going to reach out to here in the Seattle area, who is a life coach for those uh, people who are retired and now before they are, they're either retired or getting close to retirement and they're wanting to be proactive and say, okay, what's my next act? What do I want to do here? Do I want to maybe come up with a whole new career? Do I want to work part-time? Do I want to do a 180 or continue as maybe a consultant in my, in my career field that I've chosen here and just do something different? Uh, so I think that'll be really interesting to talk to someone who deals with people struggling in that situation, just trying to find and keep their identity as they move uh, out of a job and into retirement. Yeah, certainly, I think the uh, retirement age of uh, 55 or 65, whatever it is for a lot of people, I think that's going to be one of those things years from now, it'll be long forgotten and it will be a whole new arena out there. And you can see literally millions of people who are very healthy mm -hmm. and are, are doing exactly what you're saying, Eric, deciding their next chapter. I think th this will be very instructive going forward. I hope so. And I did want to say I'm really looking forward to Mr. Williams' interview with you. Uh, you know, a lot of times when people are in those situations of violence or or, or, or hardship or, or even health issues, they, you can you kind of go one or two ways, I guess. Uh, you can become an introvert and woe is me or or become very depressed, or, or you can take action. And I love to hear when people like that take a bad experience and make a positive out of it. And you'll find it coming up in just a few moments. Thanks for that tee-up. So we'll be right back. Sounds great.
Matthew Williams, founder and director of The Hate Lab and a professor of criminology, has joined us. He was inspired to devote his life to finding the causes and hopefully solutions to our society of hate because he was the victim of a hate crime when he stepped out of a British pub for a smoke and was attacked viciously by three men. His original goal was to become a journalist, but his trajectory changed after this incident. We talk about the attack during this interview. He has written a book called The Science of Hate. It has been described as a timely, groundbreaking exploration of the tipping point between prejudice and hate and what we can do to stop it. Are we wired to hate? I spent a lot of time trying to figure that one out. We are wired to prefer people like ourselves, however that might manifest, but we're not necessarily wired to hate. Our brains were formed over hundreds of thousands of years to keep us alive. Ultimately, obviously, the goal of any species is to survive. And in the case of human beings, the way we managed to do that was by cooperating really well in groups. And species that cooperated most effectively in groups were the ones that survived. So our brains developed under those conditions. And ultimately, what that meant was is that we've become a very groupish species. Uh, we like being parts of groups. When we're excluded from a group, we get very anxious and unhappy. And um, we see it in kids as young as the age of three, actually, and psychological studies have found that. So this groupishness on its own isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's actually very good. It's kept us you know, on top of the tree um, for, for millions of years. Um, but it can be weaponized. So when it is weaponized, um, we can see the seeds of prejudice and hate creep in. And what, what do I mean by weaponized? Ultimately, if we want to be part of a group, we want to cooperate with a group, there are very often those outside that group. Who they are, what they are, depends on social context. And it doesn't necessarily have to mean that that outside group is treated badly. But if we are told that that group are a threat to us under any circumstance. They could be, for example, an economic threat in some way. They could be a symbolic threat, a threat to our culture in some way. Then all of a sudden, this groupishness can become a negative trait and we can start to discriminate against that group so they don't damage the in-group or what we perceive to be damaging the in-group. And we're all like that. Uh, there's not a human on the planet that doesn't have this sort of groupishness to them. You know, it's part of our wiring. Um, but it's what's layered on top, what I call the accelerants in the book, that can turn this innate group into something that's a threat. We, we have super threat detecting machines because we've had to have been just to survive on this planet. But parts of our biology, those parts of our brains, and elements of our hormonal makeup can bring us to a point where um, hate can manifest if we are exposed to the right set of accelerants. And the second part of the book goes into those accelerants that we can, we can discuss in length if you wish, but I'll leave it at that for now. Does online hate incite violence in the streets? That is so timely right now. It is, and it's certainly some of the most recent research that we've been doing. And the research studies done in the U.S., in Germany, um, and in the U.K. on this, that, that are building a, an evidence base that suggests there is 
link. They did a similar study in the US. They actually looked at uh, every time Trump tweeted about uh, Muslims and the number of anti-Muslim hate crimes on the streets and found very strikingly similar patterns, very strong correlation between what Trump was saying and the amount of anti-Muslim hate crimes in counties across the United States. Again, very convincing analysis. And we've done something similar in London. We, we looked at general anti-black uh, and anti-Muslim hate speech posted in London, um, geolocated it in, in parts of London, and then counted the number of hate crimes. And we looked at that over a year, and that we found that every time hate speech on social media increased, there was a corresponding increase uh, in hate crimes on the ground. You were a victim of a hate crime, and because of that, that shifted your uh, professional development. You wanted to be a journalist, and then you took another turn and went to get a master's degree in criminology. Could you describe what happened to you? Sure, yes. This is about 20 years ago. Um, I just finished my degree in sociology in the UK, and um, I was out with friends celebrating in London. Um, and I was just standing outside uh, a bar uh, having a cigarette at the time. Uh, it was a gay bar. Um, I'm a gay man. And a young man approached me and asked me for a light. Everything went black. You know, I have this taste of blood in my mouth, and I just discovered that I'd been attacked. Then there were two others that joined in the attack, and it became very apparent then that it was a homophobic attack because they were using homophobic slurs as they were beating me up. It was a horrific part of my life. It changed my personal life. For example, I've not you know, shown any kind of public display of affection because I'm terrified of being targeted again, so it's still with me. Um, and it also changed my professional life too because to be a journalist, as you said, but I knew that the answers to the questions that filled my head at the time weren't to be found in journalism, but they were to be found in criminology and the, and the study of crime and the science of crime. Um, and that's that's why I, I embarked on that master's and then eventually a PhD to, to, to unpack why... Um, those those men targeted me that day. You know, what was it? Was it was it about protecting their turf, trying to communicate to me that I I, I wasn't that I didn't belong? Was one of them trying to demonstrate how masculine in front of their other friends? The questions just uh, I was obsessed with them, and I spent the last twenty years researching that that I turned a very negative event into something very positive, and I hope that the book is a is like a combination of all that. Certainly, it's kind of a new guide going forward as to how perhaps we can get a grip on all this. Now, is it possible to stop the proliferation of hate with all the Internet and everything that people have access to and that they can get the information out there so quickly and people, as you pointed out early, earlier, reacts to that? It obviously, it, it feels like an intractable problem right now. It feels like something that doesn't have an answer to it and... I would argue that the science of prejudice and hate does have some of the answers. Um, and in lab-based experiments, um, we've discovered how to reduce prejudice in people who are suitably motivated um, and how to stop hate. But how you transpose those lab experiments from that very enclosed environment into why the society is the key problem to initiate programs that would see the eradication of things like systemic racism and so on essentially change society for the better now i am under no illusion that that the, the points that i make in the book about actually changing things would require huge amounts of resources and that's true and i, and I think we have to be 
upfront about that and, and accept that where we're at today, the damage that's been done to society by things like uh, social media, um, the acceleration of hate online, nefarious actors, state actors uh, that benefit from a divided society. You know, it, it does benefit people to divide and conquer that, that we have a long way to go and it would take an enormous amount of resources to, to change this. But the one positive thing I do end up on in the book is, is, the, is the wisdom and the power of the crowd. Um, and that's us, you know, users of social media, um, citizens. If we were to take a cold, hard look at ourselves, recognize the prejudices that we all have, understand how prejudice works and how it, we, can be, we can be hijacked and we can be you know, hacked to hate, then we can start seeing changing ourselves but also changing others. And I, and I argue that the current problem with social media, and that's us, that's the users of social media. And if we become responsibilized, we take responsibility for what's going on online. And instead of scrolling on by, when we see an act of hatred or abuse or harassment or whatever it might be, and we stand up instead and become upstanders instead of bystanders. And if we do that en masse, then I think we'll start to see some change. And the book ends on a, in a, call, on a call to action, a clarion call, if you like, uh, asking readers to stand up against hatred when they see it instead of, instead of thinking it's got nothing to do with them. It's got everything to do with them. You know, there was something in the United States called the Fairness Doctrine that when the media and television and radio was really getting underway, the FCC was created. The reason I mention that, though, is that we had a fairness doctrine in the United States till 1987. If you were on the radio, TV, management, ownership, every seven years you had to re reapply for a license. And one of the criteria was that if you presented any opinion on the air, you had to provide the other person, another party, to provide another point of view. Until that yeah. went away in 1987, when that was removed, that's when Rush Limbaugh, exploded in the 90s because his show would not i'm maintaining this is my opinion his show of three hours he could say whatever he wanted lie about whatever he wanted when that went away yeah. again i think that was another problem that really started to get out of control in this country genie's out of the bottle will it ever go back i wish we had the fairness doctrine back in this country but i don't think that'll ever happen yeah, I think that's a really astute observation. Um, I, I am familiar with it, and I always compare it to similar doctrine we have with the BBC, which has to be impartial uh, when it comes to reporting the news, whereas other channels don't have to be. So we have new channels emerging in the UK now, like GB News, which is a bit like your Fox News. Yet there's, there's, it's not incumbent on every channel to follow the doctrine, but the publicly funded TV channel, the BBC, obviously, as you'd be very familiar with, has to abide by, by that, which I think is, it would, be a, it would be nightmarish, I think, for us to see that abandoned in some way. I think, I think it, would, it would feel um, completely counterintuitive to, to see that disappear. But I think that's a really astute observation of yours. And yes, I think the absence of that has certainly seen the emergence of, of some very questionable news coverage in the U.S., um, but also it's interesting to see how, how something like that could also, uh, it never would, of course, but it could be used to regulate something like social media because that, it seems completely unregulated at present. I know there are some state laws that are being introduced, certainly in California, in terms of regulating 
certain forms of content, certainly in relation to myths and disinformation. And it terrifies me, actually, where we could end up with social media. And I think we really need to make a stand uh, against these tech giants in some way. I, I always consider them like rowdy teenagers. We need to gain control over them in some way. You know, I think Germany has a very stringent law in place right now. We've got a few laws that are just about to um, come, into, come into force in the UK and in Europe more generally that will we'll have some very serious consequences. In terms of, let's say, what can be done is Fox News has a lot of advertisers. And if you could put an effective boycott together yeah. and say, we're not going to buy your pillows, oh, yeah. you boycott the advertisers. That would be the way to do it. And I don't understand yeah. why that hasn't happened Money to the degree yeah. it should, and that would do it. With Twitter, for example, that's exactly what happened when Elon Musk took over and started to tear the company apart, what seemed like tearing it apart. The advertisers pulled out. So we've seen an example of that happen, I suppose, haven't we? And it's interesting. Now Elon's trying to monetize everything he possibly can. But it did work. So the evidence does suggest that legislation does kind of work. I think in the US, when they introduced their net DG law, which imposed fines up to 50 million euro for hate speech that wasn't removed within 24 hours, illegal hate speech, I should say, some, some evaluative evidence by economists shows that actually far-right messaging on platforms in Germany went down by about 30% since the law was introduced. So it, it does seem to have an effect. What we need is government intervention, people like us taking, taking responsibility. Yeah, when you say government intervention too, people are going to go, oh my gosh, the government, well, the government is us. Oh yeah. Yeah. Is, you know, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. I mean, but people now, it's like anything about the government. Oh my gosh. But we got to step back and go, we elect the people it's our government. I guess a big question would be to you, Matthew, is that do you think from all the things we've talked about, though, that the hate in the world today is much greater than it's always been, or is it just more exposed? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a tough one to answer, to be fair, because it's about measurement. And as, as a scientist and a criminologist, one of the key things we have to get right before we do anything is figure out how we measure the phenomenon under study. And how do you measure hate is a, is a really tough one. Um, it might surprise you, for example, that you know in the US, there were around just over 7,000 hate crimes recorded in 2021. In the UK, 150,000 hate crimes are recorded in the same period. And that, that's a massive massive um, gap doesn't mean that the uk is actually more intolerant and hateful than the us it basically means we're measuring it very differently um so working out whether or not there is more hate now than before is, is a tough it's a tough ask because of the measurement issues but the point you made there uh, after that is that you know hate is possibly having more of an impact or it's more insidious in some ways because of new technology. And I think that we're living in an age now where hate is a 24-7 phenomenon. Um, it's, if you think of kids in schools and, and bullying and hateful bullying that they experience, it used to be confined to the playground and the walk-in and walk-home from school. Now it's, it's invading the home through Snapchat, TikTok, you know, and the rest. There is no safe haven for kids in terms of bullying these days, which is why we're seeing strong evidence suggesting that social media has, is having a significant detrimental effect on the mental health of, of our younger generations. So I, I think hate is more insidious than it, it has been before because of technology. And I think that's really where we need to focus our attention. Anything else before we go, Matthew? 
the book ends on a very hopeful note. It, it does indicate how readers might want to eradicate hate using a seven-step process. So I think uh, I end on a very positive note in the end. Our thanks to Matthew Williams for spending time with us. If you would like to get a copy of his book, all you need to do is Google The Science of Hate. If there's anything you heard that we discussed today and you have your own comments that you would like to share with us, you can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. Leave your thoughts and I'll get them on the air. Just try to keep them as short as possible. Again, that phone number is 425-653-1166. In his book, he had what was called the seven steps to stop hate. One, we must recognize false alarms. The human threat detector locked away inside our brains has evolved to keep us safe. It's done a great job getting us to where we are, but it's now out of date. We must question our prejudgments of others. Number two, we must question our own prejudices. The human brain cannot process all the information, so it takes shortcuts, which go on to influence opinions. These shortcuts in the form of stereotypes can be responsible for how we see others, especially strangers. We should never act on first impressions. Number three, We should not shy away from engaging in contact with others different from us. Think of your closest circle of friends, those you would turn to in a crisis. Now think of your neighbors and the people you see at the coffee shop. Think of the color of all the people's skins, their gender, sexual orientation, religion, etc. We have much more in common than we are different. Number four. We must take the time to put ourselves in the shoes of others. Viewing counter-stereotypical characters on TV and spending time with others who are different from us can teach us about what it's like to be somebody else. Would I trade places with them? And if not, why not? Number five, we must not allow divisive events to get the better of us. Periods of economic recession high-profile court cases, and terror attacks all have something in common. They have an incredible power to divide, but also to unite instead. This is because of our deeply held values. Six, we must burst our filter bubbles. Despite the global reach of the internet, our contacts and exposure to viewpoints online may be less diverse than in our offline world. It is safe to assume most of us either actively avoid groups and information that do not match our preferences. And seven, we must all become hate incident first responders. When we see hate, we must call it out. You just received some startling news. You're going to need brain surgery. But the doctor also says your prospects for total recovery are excellent. The doctor is very confident with his prognosis. He's performed hundreds of similar surgeries during his career. Who would you choose, this doctor or another doctor who's never performed this type of surgery? If the doctor who's performed similar surgeries is your choice, then experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, 
and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. One of the... I can't believe how prolific this man was as a composer of music. Burt Bacharach has passed away at the age of 94, so he had a good run. With a guy named Hal David, who wrote the lyrics to these songs, he just wrote a buttload of big hits. Yep. I want the world to know the story of my life. Would you stay? Don't go. Please stay. Don't go. I don't want you. I don't need you. I don't love you anymore. Baby, it's you. Sha-la-la-la-la. The man who shot Liberty Valen. He shot Liberty Valen. And make it. And Lisa Foster, perhaps the worst song of ever, and they didn't even mention this in his obituary. What? And I understand why, because I'll it be is... I'll be the judge of that. No, you you, you will be the judge of it, because it's got to be one of the most misogynistic songs ever. It's probably one of Trump's favorite songs. What? It's Wives and Lovers. Oh! Check it out. Hey, little girl, comb your hair. Fix your makeup, 
soon he will open the door. Don't think because there's a ring on your finger, you need to try anymore. Unbelievable. It just doesn't it just doesn't fit in his canon of songs at all, but there it is. And that's Jack Jones singing it. Wives and Lovers. Yeah, that's a good one. You're right. Uh, Wives should always be lovers, too. Rush to his arms the moment he comes home to you. He's almost there. Don't stomp over to his arms. Rush to his arms. And have dinner, yeah, have dinner waiting. Maybe that's why I don't have a relationship, is I've not rushed into anybody's arms. I've just sort of stomped over to them reluctantly. <laughs> well, there you have it, uh, this week's peculiar podcast with uh, Lisa Foster and uh, also Pat Cashman. And that was uh, very interesting, historic. I mean, uh, again, I mentioned before that I had no idea that he had the depth of so many songs. And of course I do remember that song, uh, wives and lovers, my parents playing that on the stereo in the 1960s. And I thought it was, well, what's wrong with that sort of, I never thought about it, but now historically you listen to it and you go, yeah, that was a little bit, uh, another time. Yeah. Another time. Um, I was just struck by song after song, Eric and I were listening to him. It's just amazing. The, the breadth of his talent. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I know, and maybe I'm wrong on this, Eric, you can correct me here, but isn't it the ones that write the music, typically the ones that are making a ton of money? <laughs> I, it all depends on their contract, okay. you know, okay. but I'm sure uh, Burt Bacharach and Hal David did pretty well. Okay. Yeah. Right. So his grandkids, I don't need to send them any money, you don't think? No, okay. I wouldn't think so. Right. No. <laughs> that was Just amazing. the amount of Put money they made me on. some money, though, Eric, if you're in <laughs> sure? the mood for doing that. How about you, Eric? What the heck? It's Let's coming your it, way. You know? I got all these Canadian but, uh, coins I got to get rid of. <laughs> but I love the way they flag that and uh, pull that all together. Um, Peculiar podcast again that airs on their podcast. And all you need to do again to access it is just Google Peculiar Podcast. And you're there and you can hear this segment that they have and a whole bunch of others going way back. And that's just an example of what they do. Very talented people. And Eric, one more time about tomorrow, Brooke Bacharach at five o'clock, did you say? Oh, KKNW? yeah. Yeah. Viva right. ENT. We're doing a tribute to Burt Bacharach and Hal David, just talking about all their fantastic hits. So should be enjoyable uh, if you like classic music. Uh, sounds great. Okay, let's move on now, and we're going to be, uh, well, an interview I had with uh, Dr. Dory Burgesson, Dean of Washington State University's College of Veterinary Medicine, just coming up in a moment. Dr. Dory Borgeson, Dean of Washington State University's College of Veterinary Medicine, since July 2020, has joined me after more than a decade at the University of California at Davis School of Veterinary Medicine, she established herself as a very well-respected pioneer and leader in the field of veterinary medicine. She is also well-known in the field of research and has received many accolades in that field. 
Washington State University is the fifth oldest vet college in the United States. Now, I have a long history with WSU, and I really didn't know that. Mm -hmm. I knew we had a renowned vet school, but I had no idea that Mm -hmm. it was the fifth oldest. So let's just start with that. We opened in 1899, mostly focused on agriculture and definitely the state of Washington. And our first class was three students. And the first building, I love this, was a shed. The cost was not to exceed $60. So um, we have come a long way from there. Interestingly, WSU has always been a leader in academic rigor. So we were the first one, the first vet school in the nation to require a high school diploma. And we were the first to develop a four-year curriculum. And then since then, there's been a shift that we're more allied with medicine, really, than agriculture, you know, medicine of all sorts. And so now, where are we? We educate students from all over the world. We are all or part of 11 buildings, including an academic teaching hospital. We have over 190 faculty, 300 staff. We have 132 veterinary students each year, of which about 80% are women. We are ranked fourth in total research expenditures among 33 veterinary colleges in the U.S. So we have had and continue to grow. So it's come a long way since that stable in 1899 when it started. <laughs> 1899. I wonder exactly. how long the legislature yep. debated that, whether $60 was too much, and <laughs> maybe you have to cover it. That's I a, know. I love that. The quote was something like, not to exceed $60. Oh, that's said. amazing. I would have wrote a check for then. You could have had my name, you know, named after the college, yeah. the best college then. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on, a, on a personal level, what attracted you to the uh, veterinary medicine in the first place and then your transition to WSU? So I was um, a very familiar story in veterinary medicine. I was the girl that always wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, I've had a deep connection to animals since I can remember. Um, where the owner of many animals started working at veterinary clinics when I was 13 very deep connection to the environment and the outdoors, and then also the science. So that's kind of a pretty traditional trajectory for a lot of women in veterinary medicine right now. I grew actually to love more academic medicine. I think my commitment to science and research and leadership as well over time. And then WSU has just been a great fit for me. I mean, I love the Pacific Northwest. I'm enjoying the Palouse. And the college in particular is really full of kind of hardworking, really gritty, innovative faculty and staff that really care. It's a passionful profession, and our college definitely reflects that. So I felt pretty immediately at home here. Um, Our students are really amazing, and we draw on students regionally, you know, from Idaho, Utah, Montana. They love our program because it's focused on all species still. We don't track. We have a great teaching hospital. We actually have a lot of very innovative programs, models of care, really impactful. Um, so when I, I really realized when I first came to WSU that change was really possible and people like being here because you could still build programs. So we have a very particular culture, uh, like every university. There is a pretty incredible and co- increasing need for veterinarians. As you probably know very well, the human-animal bond is strong and not going away. Um, and we fill so many roles in society, right? Shelter medicine, rural medicine, food safety, biomedical research. So I think there's about four new veterinary programs in the last year or two and many more coming. You know, I just read uh, yesterday that during the pandemic, one in five people who never had a pet before actually Mm -hmm. adopted a pet during that time. That is stunning to me. Yeah, it is. You know, people, kids were at home. They wanted animals, right? We all know how kids love to beg their parents for animals. And people largely thought, well, maybe this is the best time, you know, to train a dog, to be at home with an animal. 
Um, and, you know, it's just been our business increased remarkably over COVID, honestly, to the point where we couldn't manage that. So there's been a lot of compassion fatigue and burnout in our profession. But, um, you know, the other side of that is that it really implies a bright future for people who love their animals. When you were at the yeah. um, University of California at Davis as a vet med student, you started a clinic mm-hmm. that was modeled after today, the Doni Co. Pet Clinic that's based in yeah. Seattle. And for those, of pe- yeah. those who don't know the Doni Co. Pet Clinic, it's a clinic that provides free pet care for low-income and homeless people in the Seattle area. And it's been around for mm-hmm. over 35 years and was started by two WSU grads, uh, Co. and uh, mm-hmm. Doni, together. So having mm-hmm. said all that, how does it feel for you to come full circle and to see that yeah. WSU vet med students that are volunteering now at the Doni Co. Mm-hmm. Pet Clinic in yeah. Seattle? Uh, it's just awesome. It is really funny. I came to Seattle with a friend of mine, a classmate, um, and we saw the Doni Co. Clinic, and literally we just got to talking about it and uh, started and decided to start a clinic in Sacramento based on the same concept, um, pet care for people either low-income or experiencing homelessness operating out of loaves and fishes in Sacramento. And it's still there. It's, it's called the Mercer Clinic. It's also evolved like the Doni Co. to be this amazing clinic. Still has volunteer vet students from UC Davis. And then when I came up here, one of my classmates actually is a long-term veterinarian at the Doni Co. Clinic. And I just it just is really um, wonderful, one, to see the incredible legacy that it continues and has been sustained over time. It is growing, in fact. And, you know, access to care is a real issue for us in veterinary medicine. As everyone knows, it's very expensive to take your animal to a veterinarian, even for routine care. Then high-level care is even more expensive, and we don't have the same insurance system. Some animals are insured, but most are not. And so there's a lot of painful decisions for people regarding how they can and how much they can care for their, for their pets. Um, people will often do things for their pets and then you know, give up their own ability to have food or um, a place to stay that night. And so access to care, spectrum of care, these are new initiatives in veterinary medicine that have really will be you know, played out in places like the Mercer Clinic and the Doni Co. Clinic. So I just I love the fact that I'm in a state that's had such a long history in that. And along those lines, this is something where the UW and WSU can get along. And that is an initiative that's been entered (laughs) together called One Health. This, to me, is extremely exciting. Could you explain that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's extremely exciting to me, too. Again, it's an area where University of Washington, Washington State University work together. And it's been a true collaborative partnership from the bottom to the beginning. Um, So it's an initiative. Where pe- in a place where people with pets can access medical and veterinary care at the same time. So we have an amazing WSU veterinarian and rotating veterinary students. They team up with a nurse practitioner from Neighbor Care Health and then University of Washington medical, nursing, social work, public health, and pharmacy students. And twice a month, they provide care to young adults experiencing homelessness and their pets. And as we know, pets can be such a lifeline and so important in the lives of these adults going through so many tradition, transitions. So, you know, one example um, that I love to talk about is that this neighbor care clinic was set up in the community before the veterinary care started. 
But when they sought to add veterinary care, the visits, the, the young adults that would come for their own health care, their visits increased by 40%. People were far more willing to seek help for themselves if help for their pets was provided at the same time. This is a clinic where our veterinarians and our nurse practitioners practice what we call trauma-informed care, really developing continuity and commitment to care and um, for, for these owners. So, for example, um, if you have a person who's undergoing substance abuse treatment, like pain medications, and their dog needs pain medications, the nurse practitioners and the veterinarians work together to make sure that what they're doing holistically cares for the pet and for the owner, decreased risk for the owner um, by not giving animals pe- uh, medication that could be a problem for their owner. So it's just a remarkable, collaborative, community health care initiative that has just been so successful um, in Seattle. Very exciting, and it's, uh, it's fascinating to see it grow and, and what it is really becoming. Uh, final question before I let yeah. you go, and that is the WSU College of Vet Med has a close working relationship with the Paul G. Allen School of Global Health. Literally, you are yeah. taking a trip yeah. next week to Africa with the president of the university, Kirk Schultz, and some other dignitaries because of WSU's presence in Africa in mm-hmm. the global health area mm-hmm. and, of course, veterinary yeah. care. Yeah. Could you describe what yeah. that's about? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the Paul G. Allen School for Global Health is actually one of the five schools in our college. So it's not only adjacent, those members of the faculty are are in the college ourselves. The vision for it was conceived in 2006 by some very transformative leaders. And the building and its program were funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Paul G. Allen Capstone Gift, and that was dedicated in 2012. And, you know, why is that important? It's because the Allen School highlights the relationship between human health, animal health, and the health of the environment. And that is something that veterinarians, in the way they think, have known forever. And it's something that obviously is gaining traction They're global leaders in some of the most challenging issues facing our world, so infectious disease, antibiotic resistance. And the reason the Allen School does it so well is we have programs that are sustainably based in East Africa, specifically Kenya and Tanzania and Guatemala, and we educate and serve locally, local local faculty, local students. And our goal is to increase in-country capacity. Right? So we're not taking students and faculty out of the country, training them here. So many of those students in those programs stay in the United States. We are serving locally and making sure that each of these countries is developing their own base of education and research. We have 18 PhD students currently training under two training grants in Kenya. And they have developed the most incredible model for community care and true public health. I would love to recapitulate in the United States. Um, but in the United States and, and in developing countries, the link between animal health and human health and physical and financial well-being are just so intricately linked. And that's the reason that global health is so often and so well-positioned in a veterinary college because of those links. The WSU is wanting to grow its international programs. They want to support the programs, especially in East Africa with the University of Nairobi in particular, because of our deep relationships that already exist there. And we're looking at how we can grow 
a study abroad program for our undergraduate students, how we can grow more undergraduate programming to help sustain either areas they do not have yet or areas that we can help build strength. But President Schultz and the First Lady, Noel Schultz, will also be looking at new engagement on the undergraduate, graduate, and professional areas. So it's going to be a really exciting week. My thanks to Dr. Dory Borgeson, Dean of Washington State University's College of Veterinary Medicine. Well, we are coming down to the end of the show, but we have a couple more great segments to go. We have Voices in History Now, and then we have the Timeless Classic, which is coming up, and I think you'll enjoy both of these. We'll start out with the Voices in History today. Um, On March 14, 1950, the FBI introduced the 10 Most Wanted Fugitives list. It came into existence because of a news story in 1949 about the toughest guys the FBI wanted to capture. The story drew so much public attention that J. Edgar Hoover said, hey, let's do this all the time. (laughs) Since then, over 150 criminals have been apprehended because of the tips from the public. Only 10 women have appeared on the 10 Most Wanted list. I don't think that's surprising. On March 15th, that would be today, 58 years ago today, President Lyndon Johnson addresses a joint session of Congress to urge passage of the Voting Rights Act, which it eventually did pass, as we know, and he used the phrase, we shall overcome, that was borrowed from African-American leaders. On March 15th, 1869, 150 years, 154 years ago today, The Cincinnati Red Stockings became the first professional baseball team in America. This came shortly after the National Association of Baseball Players, which previously banned payments to players, opened the door and allowed players to get paid. That year, the Red Stockings finished the season with a record of 57 and zero. So it kind of, then the other team said, hey, we should get paid too, you know? So. That goes. Uh, Let's see. On March 16, 2008, Bear Stearns nearly avoids bankruptcy by selling to Morgan Chase. The company sold for $2 a share. And on March 16, 1926, American Robert Goddard successfully launches the first liquid-fueled rocket in Auburn, Massachusetts. The rocket traveled 60 miles per hour reaching an altitude of 43 feet and landing 184 feet away. The rocket was 10 feet tall. 43 years later, the Americans landed on the moon. Think about that from that point to there. Think about someone who's like 40, 43 years old. That's how old they are. But the length of time that first, uh, you know, rocket went very primitive. Mm -hmm. But then we're on the moon 43 years later. So I think that's pretty amazing. So those come from the History Channel and uh, This Day in History. So I really uh, urge, as I do every week, if you're interested in any of these segments, this is gold to go to those and and look at what's going on. So uh, anything, Eric, before we're going to go to our close right now? Yeah, I just want to say what a great show. Uh, It had a great variety of information, a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of facts, and and I love, uh, of course, voices in history. Uh, love how you wrap it up there. I learn something every week, and hey, that's pretty cool. Nice well, job. we're going to keep people in uh, uh, wondering about what's going on about the 
lid that blew off into space that you're going to take the lead on next week. Yeah. little tease there. The first right. object into space. Yes. This is a fascinating. Is that where he blew his lid comes from, that expression? <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> blew his Very top. Good. Blew his top, yeah. That, that could be uh, something to research more. I mean, look, <laughs> just think all the stuff people don't know until they listen to this show. That's right. So, unfortunately, we are out of time. I've been having such a good time. I have to say goodbye, or we do. Uh, my name is Paul Casey. Uh, thanks, Eric Crema, Eric Ryder, of course, stitching this all together, and Benny Mathers, who helps us get the folders together and helps edit. Um, Voices of Experience airs on Kixie Wednesdays at 3 p.m. and is simulcast with Hubbard's sister station, KKNW, 1150 a.m. And then again, Voices of Experience is rebroadcast on Kixie only on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Next week, Always Ireland. It's a book written by Jack Cavanaugh. It's got tremendous historical tidbits about Ireland and every region, beautiful pictures. Um, I've actually already done the interview. I'm telling you, this is very fascinating, and it really inspires me to want to go back. So if you have any idea that you want to visit Ireland sometime soon, I really think you would enjoy hearing this interview next week. And then we have a great uh, event that happens locally, and it's been going on for 18 years. It's the Moisture Festival, and I'm interviewing Ron Bailey, who's the founder of that. That will begin on March 23rd, run through April 16th at Broadway Performance Hall. And uh, that's on Seattle's Capitol Hill. If you want to find out more about this, you can go to moisturefestival.org in preparation for the interview. But essentially, it's almost like a vaudeville show, but that doesn't even describe it well. It's like you got to see it. But it's jugglers, musicians, comedians, and aerialists, the whole shebang. So uh, anyhow, I hope you can uh, tune in next week to see that. Quote of the week. Appeasement of the extremes never works, not in war, not in life, not in politics. You don't outsmart bullies or buy them off or smile, then induce submission. You have to stand up to them when they have, when you have a chance. Matt Bay, Washington Post. Have a great rest of the week.